If you'll find in your Bible your place at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're just joining us for the very first time here in the service or online, whenever we're not doing something special on a Sunday, some particular emphasis on a Sunday, we're studying through 1 Corinthians. And since the first of the year, we have been in 1 Corinthians and we have arrived at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and today we're going to continue our study of this passage. Let let me just say to you from the beginning that this is one of the more difficult passages for me to have to speak about, especially in a setting like this, and I hope you'll be patient with me as I try to carefully pick my words, realizing that we have young ears that are listening, as well as all of you that are here that have old, not old ears, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) And I intended to say it that way. The passage that we're going to look at and read here in a moment, it's, it's not a wow passage. You know what I mean by that? When you're reading and you say, wow, I never saw that before. That's amazing. It's not a wow passage. It's, it's not a pow passage. You know, like, mm, it hit me right in the face, pow. I can't hardly believe he would say that to me. I'm convicted. This is a how passage. This is the passage that lays out some things about how we are supposed to conduct ourselves, especially when it comes to relationships, specifically in the area of marriage, how we're supposed to live together in this matter of marriage. And I want to read the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and then we're going to come back and we're going to be looking at these verses uh, more specifically. Verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, It is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray today that you'll help me to choose my words carefully and yet choose them with great conviction because this is the Word of God. It is written for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is intended to be studied and understood by your people. And so, Lord, I need great wisdom, and I need uh, the ability to think clearly as we work through today's message. And I pray, Lord, that you'll give us open hearts. We live in a society that is morally corrupt. Moral corruption pervades every aspect of society sometimes even the church. And God, we ask you to forgive us where that is true. Lord, we want to live according to your word. We want to live by the standard of your word. You have redeemed us to live in a way that is distinct from this world so that the world will find their hope in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, guide us now as we talk about this passage. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Several years ago, an older pastor friend of mine contacted me and he said, David, I'd like to set up a meeting for you and for three or four other pastors that you would like to invite to have a personal conversation with Dr. Warren Wiersbe. Dr. Wiersbe, of course, is one of my favorite authors. He's a scholar. He's a brilliant man. He's now in heaven. So it's been probably six or eight years ago that this took place. But 
This older pastor was his personal friend. They had known each other. Dr. Wearsby and this man had known each other for a lot of years. And this was going to be an opportunity for us to be able to ask him questions and let him respond to us. And I thought it was an incredible privilege. Some of our pastoral staff, a pastor from another church, were invited to come. We met back here in my office, and my pastor friend uh, called Dr. Wearsby, and Dr. Wearsby answered. We put him on speakerphone, and for the next hour or so, maybe a little longer than an hour, we listened to him as he talked, and we asked questions. You know, in your mind, when you're thinking about asking questions, they sound pretty smart and pretty intelligent until you verbalize them and you realize how dumb your question really is and that's how I felt sometimes when I was asking questions I should have just kept my mouth shut but this was a once in a lifetime kind of an opportunity to be able to sit down one-on-one and talk to one of the foremost authors and scholars of our day And I was blessed to be a part of that meeting with five or six of us who had that conversation. I want you to think of chapter 7 as the beginning of this question and answer kind of a discussion that's going on with the Apostle Paul. It's the reason why we call this Dear Paul. They have written to him a letter. We don't have that letter. It's not available to us. We have to reconstruct what they were saying in the letter to Paul by looking at how he answers them. But they had written to him a letter, and in that letter there were a number of questions that they wanted Paul to answer for them. I mean, this is the apostle of Christ. This is the one uh, that is this great missionary spreading the gospel who had even been to Corinth and is the reason why there's a church in the city of Corinth. And they wanted the perspective of this authority of Christ, this apostle of Christ on these questions. And when you go starting in chapter 7 to the end of this book, you you can see these questions. They're always marked by this beginning phrase. You see it in verse 1, now concerning. If you look over at verse 25 of that same chapter, he says, now concerning. If you look over to chapter 8, verse 1, he says, now concerning concerning. He does that again in chapter 12. He does it twice more in chapter 16. And those are, those are points that are marking in our uh, reading of the text that I'm now answering one of the questions that you have asked of me, and I'm going to give you either what the Lord has led me to say, has inspired me to write, or I'm going to tell you what Jesus has to say on this particular subject. And so this very first section that he's answering a question has to do with the subject of marriage, and it has to do with the subject of singleness. And what he's going to, in essence, say to us is that the single life is good and the married life is natural. The single life is good and the married life is natural. But for me to break down these nine verses, I want to do that by looking at three groups of people. And I I can just tell you that my homiletics professors would be ashamed of me for the way I outline sermons. I would never pass their classes. But I'm less concerned about passing a homiletics class than I am making sure that you understand what the text says to you. So that you understand it and can apply it to your life. So if you're a homiletician, this is not going to be for you today. But there's three phrases that if you want to go ahead and write them down so you don't have to come back to them and write them as we go through. The first is the available and looking. The available and looking. The second phrase is the single and satisfied. The single and satisfied. And the third phrase is the married and fulfilled the married and fulfilled. And we're going to look at these nine verses through those three groups of people that are mentioned here. And actually, we're going to start at the end, and we're going to work back to the beginning. Because ultimately, what I want to say to you has to do with those of you who are married and listening to my message, although I want to say some things as well, important things to those of you who are single. So let's talk, first of all, about those who are available in looking. If you look down at verse 8, you'll see what I'm talking about. He says, but I say to the unmarried. 
Now, who are the unmarried? Those are either people who are single by choice or single because they have not yet found a spouse to marry, or they are single maybe because of divorce, but they are single individuals, and they are available individuals. And then he says, and to the widows. The widows, because of the death of a spouse, maybe a a husband here, the death of a husband here could be the death of a wife, but he's talking about those who are available And I want you to notice, secondly, not only are they available, they're unmarried, or they're widows or widowers, they are looking. You notice verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. They are then what I call the available in looking. Now, the reality is that all of us, except a very few of you, we're in this category at one time or another, or maybe you're in this category right now. You are available, you are unmarried, or a widow or a widower. You are available and you are looking. And some of you are going to have to look long and hard. <laughs> like with me. When you look like me, you have to look long and hard. You are available in looking. The reality is that I I can't hardly, we've been married be 47 years this summer, I can't hardly remember a time in my life when I was available and looking. It's been that long ago. Uh, And some of you are in a second part of your life and you are again available in looking. And it's it's a very awkward place to be, especially in the world in which we live. But there are people today who are available in looking. And it's okay, the Apostle Paul says, that you have a desire to marry. You're you're available and you're looking, and and God is pleased. If you should find the right person to marry, God is pleased. That's a natural thing to occur in the lives of people who are available in looking. There's some funny poems that are written by singles. Uh, They are a group of people that get together to encourage one another, and some of them have been single for a very long time, and they had a little exercise that they did to to, to help each other, to laugh with each other, and that was to sit down and write out a poem as to why they were, even after all this time, still available in looking. For instance, one of the men wrote this little poem. Of all the girls that ever I knew... I never saw one I thought would do. I wanted a wife that was nice and neat, that was up to date and had small feet. I wanted a wife who was loving and kind and that hadn't too much of an independent mind. I wanted a wife that could cook and sew and wasn't eternally on the go. I wanted a wife that was strikingly beautiful, intelligent, rich, and exceedingly dutiful. That isn't so much to demand in a wife, but she's still not found, though I've looked all my life. (laughs) I I don't know who this man is, but I I feel like I need to say to him, that woman does not exist. (laughs) That that woman in that exact description does not exist. And there was a single lady who wrote about her experience as a single. Though she was available and looking, she hadn't found anybody after a long period of time. This is what she wrote. The only reason why I've never wed is as clear as the day and is easily said. Two lovers I had who would have made me a bride, but the trouble was just that I couldn't decide. Whenever John came, I was sure it was he that I cared for the most. But with Charlie by me, my hands clasped in his, and his eyes fixed on me, t'was as easy as could be to say, I'll be thine. Now tell me, what was a poor maiden to do? Who couldn't seem to choose between these two? I dillied and dallied and couldn't decide till Johnny got married and Charlie, he died. (laughs) And that is the reason why I've never wed for How could I help it, as everyone said, when Johnny was married and Charlie was dead? (laughs) Uh, I have to appreciate their sense of humor, don't you? They they are those that are available in looking in this room. 
There, there are those of you and those of you that are watching us that are available and looking. That's natural. That's normal. That's a part of life. Uh, the younger you are, probably the more available you are and the more looking you are. But you're available in looking. But can I just give you one bit of advice? Be patient. There are things worse than being single. There are things worse than being unmarried. And one of those, at least, is being married and being in a terrible, horrible, horrendous marriage. And it's better to wait to make sure that God brings to us the right person. I'm reminded of a little story that I heard about a man who was trying to decide between two women he wanted to marry. And the one thing that he really loved is he really loved music. He loved it with all of his heart. He sang and could play instruments. He loved music. And there was one woman that she was strikingly beautiful, strikingly beautiful, but she couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. She couldn't sing on pitch. She was off key every time she tried to sing. On the other hand, there was this other woman. She was sort of homely, sort of homely, but she could sing like the angels. And one day he decided for himself, I'm going to marry this homely woman who can really sing. And on the first morning of their honeymoon, he rolled over and looked at her and said, sing, baby, sing. <laughs> there are some things worse than being single. And one of those is to be in a bad marriage to be married to a person that doesn't love you and that you have a hard time loving. And may I just stop at this moment as we're talking about this how passage of Scripture. Will you just stop with me for a moment and let me remind you at this juncture that it is always right for a believer to marry a believer, and it is always wrong for a believer to marry an unbeliever. That's God's Word. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look down at verse 39. He's talking to a wife whose husband has died, but listen to the phrase he uses. Chapter 7, verse 39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes. In other words, she's available in looking. To be married to whom she wishes. But then he gives the qualifier, only in the Lord. The same thing is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, be not unequally yoked together, an unbeliever with a believer. What does an unbeliever have to do, he says, with a, with, with a believer? We're, we're, we're living in two different worlds. We're, we're going in two different directions. We have two different masters to our lives. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm going to marry him or I'm going to marry her hoping that he or she will be saved. And I do know situations where it has worked out that way, but I know a lot more circumstances where it didn't work out that way. And the very first thing you ask if you're available and looking before you even start dating an individual is, do they know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, number one? And number two, are they moving in a relationship with Jesus in the same direction I'm moving in a relationship with Jesus? And so the Apostle Paul comes and he speaks first here, if you will, at least through this message, speaks first to the available and looking if that's you today, that's natural. That's normal. We want our children to grow up into young people and young adults that are available in looking. If that's what they wish, it's normal and natural for them to feel that way. We simply want them to wait on God to bring the right person into his or her life, and we want them to marry in the Lord. That's what God tells us to do. But there's a second group here. Not only the available in looking, but there is the single in satisfied. The single in satisfied. If you go back with me to chapter 7, verse 1, and notice he uses a little phrase at the end of verse 1. It says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Interesting phrase, isn't it? Some of you have already moved apart in the pews. You want to make sure you're not touching one another. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. 
That may be Paul's perspective on the single life. But it also may be one of the slogans that were used by the Corinthians to demand abstinence even in marriage. And I tend to lean toward that second view for a number of reasons, just one of which I'll point out to you. That is the flow of this passage from chapter 6 into chapter 7. In chapter 6, if you remember, as we studied through there, there were four slogans, there were four excuses that the Corinthians used for their aberrant behavior. You remember two of them were in verse 12, one of them was in verse 16, and a fourth one down in verse 18. And the flow of the passage seems to indicate that Paul goes on using one of those phrases that was commonly used in Corinth. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That was possibly one of those slogans that they used. In other words, there were those who the pendulum had swung clear to the other extreme. In chapter 6, the pendulum is clear over here, and they're practicing immorality, and they say what we do in our bodies doesn't matter. It's our spirit that matters. What we do with our bodies doesn't matter. And they were involving themselves in all forms of immorality. And Paul had to come and correct them and say, oh, yes, your body does matter. It belongs to God. But for others, you remember, this is a deeply divided church. This is a polarized church. For others, the pendulum had swung clear to the other side, and they were espousing what's called asceticism. You deny yourself physical appetites. You deny yourself things that are the natural part of life. You deny yourself because that shows your great love for God, and that shows your great devotion to God. And, and it may be that what he's saying here is that there are some of you who are using this phrase, that it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but he goes on to say, I, I want to correct you as I've corrected you before, that marriage is good. And the fulfilling of the natural desires in marriage is a good thing. And you don't have to practice this ascetic kind of a life. We know that that's something that was popular in that day. Colossians 2, 20 to 23 talks about groups that practiced radical forms of asceticism. We know from Paul writing to Timothy in the city of Ephesus, in Ephesus chapter 4, verse 3, that there were going to be those, or there were those, that would forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods. That's what the verse says. And so it's very possible that what he's saying here is just one of those slogans and one of those phrases, and he's arguing against it. Marriage is the place to fulfill the natural desires. You don't have to live this ascetic life where you not only abstain, all to, abstain outside of marriage, you abstain even inside of marriage. That may be what he's saying. But either way, whether that's Paul's view of singleness, that it's good for a man not to touch a woman, or Paul is simply acting against the ascetics who were trying to get people to abstain even in marriage. The reality is this, that in this passage, Paul specifically speaks about singles, and he commends singleness. And all the singles in the room said, amen. <laughs> he commends singleness. He wants you to understand that singleness is also a natural thing. But specifically, I want you to notice that he says about it that it's a gift. This kind of singleness that he's talking about is a gift. Look at verse 7. He says, For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has, here it comes, his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. In other words, there are some who are gifted to be single, and there's others who are gifted to be married. And I'll just tell you my perspective on this. I think the default setting for most people's lives is marriage. That's the default setting for most people's lives. But God, in fact, does gift some people to be single and to be satisfied. And if that's the case, as it is the case, we have to stop pressuring those who are gifted to be single as if something is wrong with them. Why aren't you married? What's wrong with you? 
Something's happened to you. Is your mind not thinking straight? Did you not notice her? Let me introduce you to. We have to recognize that there is such a thing as the gift of singleness. And if God's given you the ability to be single and to be satisfied, you should be allowed to follow the gift that God has given to you. As a matter of fact, we have to reclaim the beauty, I think, in the church today of singleness. That is, singleness as it's taught in the Scripture. The kind of singleness where a person devotes his or her life to the Lord as a single adult. Because in the Bible, it's commended. This is something the Apostle Paul commends. Paul himself was single. He himself was single. And the question has always been amongst the, the, the scholars, why was Paul single? Was he single because of choice? He was single and satisfied and never really wanted to be married. He was happy in the state he found himself in. Or had he been married and divorced when he came to Christ and began following Jesus? His wife wanted nothing to do with it and she left him. Or was he a widower? Maybe she died somewhere along the way. And they assumed that because Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. But prior to A.D. 70, which was long after Paul's writing and Paul's life, prior to A.D. 70, there is no specific evidence to prove the proposition that Paul had been married and for some reason was no longer married, either divorce or death. It's just as possible that Paul was always a single and he was always satisfied as being a single. As a matter of fact, he goes on to commend some of the things that are a blessing when you're single. Look down, if you will, at verse 32 down to verse 35. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32 to 35. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married carries about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Let me just stop here for a moment. Did you realize that if you're married, you have the responsibility, the God-given responsibility to please your spouse? Husbands to please their wives, wives to please their husbands. Verse 35, and this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, (laughs) but for what is proper, in that you serve the Lord without distraction. Now, you got to understand something. Are you with me? I told you this was complex. This is not a pow passage. This is not a wow passage. This is a how passage. We've got the available and looking. It's okay. Wait on the Lord. Marry only in the Lord. We've got the single and satisfied. And Paul, I think, personally fits in that category. He was never married, never desired to be married. He was happy in the single life. And the single life afforded him the ability to do some things that he would have had difficulty doing had he been a married man. Think about that for a moment. That's what Paul is saying in those verses that we just read. But even more specifically, you've got to understand the context in which Paul says this. Back up to verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 7. Notice what he says. I suppose, therefore, that this is good. Why is this good? Because of the present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Because of this present distress. Paul says, I want to commend singleness and being satisfied to you because it's got advantages that are attached to it, but as well because of the distress that's going on around us. And we're not told what the distress was. We have to assume that the distress had to be some kind of persecution that may have been going on within the city of Corinth, that marriage and children would have made it even more emotionally painful to have experienced than it would have been if you were single and satisfied. Or it may be that Paul is thinking 10 years down the road, 
Because within 10 years, the Rome, Rome is going to turn up the heat against Christians. He's going, it's going to destroy even more Christians within 10 years. And, and Paul may be thinking about Rome, about what's coming, and the distress that's on its way. And there's advantages to being single and satisfied. Or he may be talking about just living in the day we live in. I mean, just any day that we live in. There are struggles and things that go on around us that when we're unattached and we're unmarried, there's a liberty that comes as a result of that that you don't have when you're in marriage. That's not to be a slap at marriage. That's not because Paul didn't love or respect marriage. Can you think of any other passage in the epistles of Paul where he honors and exalts marriage? I can But he also understood that there were advantages to being single and satisfied. There are advantages when it comes to the distress of life around us that can be an advantage. There's the advantage of not being distracted, of having to please other people. I can pick up and do what I need to do that the Lord's calling me to do without having a lot of consideration of a lot of other people. There's some advantages to it. Think of it in these terms. And and maybe this is not the best illustration, but I realize that what I'm about to tell you about is one of the most horrendous periods of history. But think about the Holocaust for a moment. And think about the millions of Jews that were massacred by the Nazis. Imagine how mothers and fathers must have felt when their children were ripped from their arms and taken from them. I mean, not only was it painful what they themselves were experiencing, but now there's another layer of pain that they're experiencing because they're watching their children go away from them and they don't know what's going to happen to them. Or think for a moment about husbands and wives that were mercilessly separated from one another and the inhumanity and the indignities that were going to be done to their spouses. It's one thing to have experienced that and just be you the one primarily experiencing that and having another layer of pain that was involved when it was your wife or your, or your husband that you knew was going through that. I want to be clear. The Holocaust was no less cruel for the single Jews, but there was an additional layer of agony that resulted from what was happening to spouses and children of married couples. And you understand what I mean, don't you? There's an additional level, level of pain that they would have had to deal with because of their attachment to a spouse and their attachment and love for their children. And so Paul comes and says, look, if you're available and looking, that's okay. That's all right. Most people are going to be there. That's the default setting for most people. But there are some that God has gifted, especially in times of distress. And he's gifted them to be single and satisfied, and it's okay. Can I say to you singles that are satisfied, it's okay. You are obeying God just as much as those of us who married obeyed God. And you don't have to become us, and we don't have to become you. Though I'm sure there's a few husbands or wives that are thinking, man, I wish I'd have stayed single. (laughs) You don't have to become us, and we don't have to become you, and we have to stop trying to match everybody up, and we have to stop treating singles who are satisfied as though there's some anomaly with some kind of a mental issue. There must be something wrong with them that nobody wants to marry them. No, they're just single and satisfied. And that's a gift that God's given to them. By the way, that's a gift that God can take away. That's a gift that if your spouse is no longer in your life, God may give you in place of that default setting of marriage. But it's okay to be single and satisfied. Are y'all still with me? Are you mad at me yet? That brings me to the third group. There are here the available and looking. There are here the single and satisfied. There are here the married and fulfilled. And I'm going to spend my last few moments here. 
And I'll just tell you from the beginning that my wife has already warned me about this portion of the message. <laughs> She's already told me to be careful about the way I pick my words because there's little ears listening. And that put me under stress in and of itself. I'm sort of with Dr. Howard Hendricks on this thing. Dr. Howard Hendricks was a longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He was the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys for many years. And he said this, we should never be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. We should never be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. And the fact of the matter is that God created sex for mankind's good. It's the perversion of God's design that makes sex evil and dirty. So I want to say to you, if you aren't one of those, you're married, you're not available in looking. If you're married, you are not available in looking. I should say it again. If you're married, you are not available in looking. And if you're not the single and satisfied, then I'm assuming that you must be among those that are married and fulfilled. You don't have the gift of singleness. You are in marriage, or in a marriage. And sexual expression within marriage is a good thing. That's what the Bible teaches. It's quiet in here, but it's a good thing. Actually, marriage is the God-given safeguard against sexual immorality in that it gives the, it gives the God-ordained context for sexual expression to be between a husband and a wife. The fulfillment of those natural desires that men and women have are to be fulfilled within the context, the God-ordained context of a marriage. It's always been this way from the very beginning. God created Adam from the dust of the earth. You remember that? breathed into him, he became a living soul. But you know what it said about Adam in chapter 2, verse 18 of the book of Genesis? It said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, those of us uh, who aren't in the single and satisfied category, we got that. We understand. It's not good for man to be alone. So what did God do? God put him into a deep sleep, took a rib from his side, and created a woman. It said in that same verse of Scripture, verse 18, I will make a helper suitable for him. He brought a complementary part to him. And now they complete each other. And then what did he say? The two shall be, what's the phrase? One flesh. You say, what does it mean to be one flesh? Well, just look back at chapter 6, verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 16, just to let God say it. Over here, he's talking about immorality. He's talking about committing sexual sin with harlots. But listen to what he says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? What, what do you mean? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So there is a sense in which the physical relationship between a husband and a wife brings about the one flesh relationship that God intended from the beginning. And that shouldn't be something we're ashamed of. It should be spoken of properly. It should be used and spoken about in the right context. It should be uh, properly uh, boundaried by the things of Scripture. But God created the physical union of the husband and wife to be something that was to be enjoyed within the marriage of that man and that woman. That's why the writer of Hebrews chapter 13 says this, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed, the word for bed is coite, coitus, the bed undefiled. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed, what takes place in the bed, is undefiled. In other words, when a man and a woman who are a husband and a wife are joined together in that physical relationship between one another, God is pleased. I feel awful lonely up here. God did not design, now listen to me, 
God did not design healthy married people to be celibate. He did not design healthy married people to be celibate. The sexual relationship of a husband and a wife is not a bargaining chip or a reward to be used with your spouse. It's not a bargaining chip. It's not a reward to be used with your spouse. As a matter of fact, it's an opportunity that God has provided within marriage, and it is an obligation. And let's go back to the text with me. Chapter 7, he says, It is good for a man not to touch. It's a euphemistic phrase speaking of that physical relationship. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have, that's a euphemism for the physical relationship, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now listen carefully. Let the husband render to the wife... The, the husband renders to the wife the affection, there's the euphemism, do her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. Now, here's going to blow you out of the water. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do you hear what he's saying? All of you big-eared people, do you hear what he's saying? The sexual relationship is good within the bonds of marriage. It was created by God, something to be enjoyed for the purpose even of procreation. And God is the one who intended it to be so. And healthy married people are not celibate people. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, Do not deprive one another. Do not deprive. It is an imperative. It is a command. You could actually say it this way. Stop depriving each other. Apparently there were some that were doing this. They had, with the pendulum, swung, swung clear over here and they were living this ascetic life and they were withholding all of these natural desires and not giving themselves to their spouse and the result was that it was creating temptation and trouble within the marriage. And Paul comes and says, stop it. It's the natural and normal thing for a husband and wife to be, to be united as one in marriage. I heard about a man whose wife made intimacy a reward for getting the house clean. If he performed his household chores, she would respond to his overtures. But if not, she acted indifferently toward him. You can't do that and be obedient to the Scripture. <laughs> you can't do that. This is not a wow passage or a pow passage. This is a how passage. You can't do that and be obedient to the Scripture. There was a lady who was married to a rather indifferent man, and so they went to see a counselor. And after listening for a while, the counselor got up, and he went around his desk, and he gave the man's wife a passionate kiss right on her lips. Then he said to her husband, she needs that at least three times a week. The husband stood up and said, thank you for your help. I'll bring her on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I think he missed the point of our passage, don't you? He missed the point of the passage. Now, I want to be careful to say that there's a difference between being unwilling and being unable. Aging and hormones and sickness and disease and timing and emotions, these are all things that affect the human body and the response of the human body. But under normal circumstances, husbands and wives have the privilege and the responsibility to express their love to each other. This is so important that he goes on to say, the only exception, I'm going to spell it out for you. Here it goes, verse 5. Do not deprive one another, here come the exceptions, except with consent for a time. In other words, the husband and wife both have to agree to a time limit. 
that you may give yourselves a consent, I should say, number one, for a time. You have to be in agreement about it. There has to be a time limit placed on it, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. There has to be a spiritual purpose for it. Did you get that? It's when both the husband and wife agree to it, abstinence. There is a time limit placed on that abstinence, and there's a specific spiritual purpose for doing so. And why is that true? He goes on and says, and come together again. There's another euphemistic phrase. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so there are the available and looking in this passage. Are you one of those? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) You realize for the available and looking, the dating apps of today used to be the single ministries of churches. You went to single ministries to find available and looking people. Now people go to apps And they look for available and looking people. Please be careful. I've met some who've met wonderful spouses, but please be careful. Available and looking. There are single and satisfied. If you're single and satisfied, it's a gift God's given to you. In the distress of the world in which we live, there are advantages to that. There are benefits to being single and satisfied. But to those of us who are married and fulfilled, let's remember that A part of that fulfilling relationship is the physical relationship that is shared between a husband and a wife. I want to finish with this. And I'm glad to be at the end. (laughs) Years ago, I was a, a young preacher preparing for the ministry. I wasn't yet married. I was engaged, but I wasn't yet married. And a preacher that I knew, a man that uh, I had great respect for, still to do to this day, a great Bible teacher, was invited to a church for a Bible conference, and it was announced that he was going to be speaking in the Bible conference on the Song of Solomon. Ah, my antennas went up. What's he going to say about the Song of Solomon? I've read through the Song of Solomon. What's he going to say about the Song of Solomon? So I, I went to the first night of that Bible conference, and I I was disappointed. He used it as an allegory, an allegory of the love of Christ for the church and the love of the church for Christ. And the Song of Solomon is an allegory as well for the love of God for Israel and the love of Israel for God. It is an allegory. It took me a long time to ever come back to the Song of Solomon and have have enough uh, courage and bravery to be able to teach from that book, but I went and found it. This is a manual that I put together, teaching instruction and comments and places for you to write things down. It was a couple's retreat in 1997. That's how long it's been since I taught this. I might be convinced if there were enough of you that wanted to take us on a couple's retreat to do this again. Okay, so we won't do that. (laughs) So that's been, what, 26 years? And I I taught the book uh, called Rekindling the Flame, using the Song of Solomon as the marriage manual. And if you can get past some of the imagery, you know, you talk about a flock of goats streaming down the hillsides of Hermon, that's her hair flowing down over her shoulders. Or, uh, you know, the, the sheep that are evenly shorn that's her white teeth that are, that are even, not like mine. I mean, they're, they're all even. They're all next to each other. I mean, it's got this beautiful poetic language in it, and I, I taught a weekend couples retreat on, on that subject. But in the front of this book, I, I wrote an introduction, two-and-a-half-page introduction. I'm not going to read it all to you. I want to read portions of it to you is my closing this morning. I write... The Song of Solomon is the most intimate love story told in all the Scripture. Jerome, an early scholar, tells us that Jewish young men were not allowed to read the book until they were 30 years of age. It had a movie rating on it. (laughs) 
The author of the book, Solomon, poetically presents the joys of marital love, though not in a typically lurid manner, set against the background of a beautiful, fertile countryside. It is the historical story of a young man, Solomon, and his love for a Shulamite woman. As you read this song, now listen, as you read this song, you'll be moved by the descriptions of the physical beauty and sexual intimacy that these lovers shared with each other. Though some of the imagery used to describe beauty would be taken as unusual to modern minds, it was appropriately understood and appreciated at this time in history. It seems fitting, it seems fitting that God would place in Scripture a book that describes the joys of this blissful marital experience since he was the one who created it in the beginning. This is truly a book of deep emotional and physical love. And then I finished with this portion of a paragraph. As you read through the text of the Song of Solomon and the notes that are included in this book, you will begin to understand the beauty of God's gift of marital love. Solomon says that it's like coals of fire that produce a vehement heat. That's chapter 8, verse 6. It is my prayer, and it is my prayer today, that a study of this book will fan those flames in your marriage. Why? Hear, hear me. Because nothing is colder than a marital relationship with no intimacy. Nothing is colder than a marital relationship with no intimacy. There are the available and looking. There are the single and satisfied, gifted by God, especially in the present distress. There are the married and fulfilled which is where marriage is supposed to be fulfilling within that relationship.